One of the amazing parts of humanity and our evolution of being humans is that we are creatures that get to assign narrative and meaning to things, whether it's objects or our lives. We literally are writing stories about our lives all the time, whether you realize it or not. My favorite definition of trauma is actually an event that shatters your worldview that you've written for yourself. So let's say you've determined that people are good and never will screw you over, and then your best friend does something that really screws you over. Well, that's a traumatic event because you've created this story about what the world is. So narrative can help and hurt you. I personally am a huge subscriber, even though there are some people that say it's the source of all pain. I love a good story. But the problem with the stories we're telling these days is we've essentially condensed and romanticized a lot of the stories in a way that surprisingly has become believable and ingrained in ourselves. So I want you to imagine the regular character arc of, let's say, a three-hour movie. So, like, you got your main character, right? And they're living a regular life. And, oh, my gosh, they're so relatable. I can see myself in this character. And you get to know them a little bit, maybe, and get to see their life that they've built for themselves. And then the inevitable... Boom. Life-shattering moment. So sad. Knew that was going to happen because bad things have happened to me. And, of course, the other shoe is about to drop. And then, oh, my God, is that sadness or hardship or heartbreak or heartache or whatever is going on in the character's life again so relatable because bad things happen in life and uh, we're just gonna sit in this for a second mm, yes terrible very sad but luckily as we all know deep down even if it doesn't feel like it in the moment bad things are temporary and so even for us and the character luckily it's gonna get better and just for the sake of a good story let's throw in a real pick yourself up by your bootstraps kind of moment 80s montage style. So sweaty, so romanticized, so great. You know, condensing down weeks or months or years of healing into like this cool cutscene and like super clean and linear and definitely no like meltdowns or falling apart again during this healing process. Like just one way, baby, all in my control and. And I'm not saying like movies should be six hours and should totally capture the healing process in like excruciating detail. I'm just pointing out that like this is the story that we see over and over again and that there's always some like do-it-yourself kind of solution. Don't get me wrong. Oh my God, I love when you get that burst of energy and like pull yourself out of the moment. I have them. I cherish them. I'm just saying it's not always like that way. And especially in like today's self-help world where you have to sell a book, it's often presented like just do this, 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 and this. Okay, but back to the story. Let's throw in a nice, you know, clean moment. That's like a culmination of all this stuff. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. Some like epic battle, epic move, maybe to win her heart back. And then boom, final battle, epic climax. Called it, by the way. And this is, I don't watch enough rom-coms actually to know the music that would accompany the scene, but this is the big move where there's a clear definitive end of the struggle. If only you can get through this part or get the answer you want or whatever it is. Bask in the glorious struggle of our hero or main character who totally has enough energy and willingness to conquer these things. Is it over? Kind of abrupt. I would make uh, changes myself, but let's signify it. Yes, and for good measure, a nice, slow, happy ending. Walking on the beach, holding hands with our tight little bodies, silhouettes, and dun dun dun. My problem's over, so fuck your broken life problems. I definitely don't have problems anymore, and will never fight with my spouse ever again. And I'm not actually taking a stance against the modern storytelling format. I love movies. I love stories. I love that they're shortened down. It's just that life isn't one cycle. And so we only get to see one cycle of this hero's arc in the story when really life is a series. So we need to learn to be kind with ourselves that, you know, you get a period. Life as you know it. There it is. Dramatic event. Some sadness in there. It's okay to be sad. And then you have pick yourself up again, starting to feel like yourself. Maybe even get that dramatic moment where you get to do something awesome. Reap the rewards, of course, and then have a period of happiness. That's totally amazing. I love it. Except that that's not the end. And 
life is totally going to keep going and keep throwing things at you. And so you'll come back to another period of life as you know it and then repeat. And so today's guest is David Dahl. You may have heard of a company he started called Dave's Killer Bread, which was actually built on his redemption story that involves being a misfit, being a screw up, a criminal, a meth head, going to prison off and on for a very long period of time, and then rebuilding himself and building this beautiful company. Except for, just like the rest of us, life kept going, and a few missteps were made, and luckily for us, they were public. And so today's episode is really about the redemption story, about starting wherever you are and being ridiculously kind to yourself as life happens and you continue to live and things continue to happen. So a few notes from the patrons who listened to this early. There's a couple moments where I laugh at some uh, unfunny parts of the interview, and that is only because I related so much to the craziness that happens when you are caught up in addiction. So without further ado, here is one of my new friends, somebody who I admire greatly, and someone who has a lot of wisdom to share, David Dahl. All right, now talk talk like you're excited, a little louder. I can't believe how freaking great this day is. That's, <laughs> that's pretty excited for me. And then talk quiet like you get real serious. I don't know how to relate to that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. All right, Dave. Hey. Thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Well, glad you're here. So uh, you listen to one episode of the podcast. I know I sent it to you and you listen to it. So you know how this is starting off. This could be as big or as small of a question as you'd like it to be. But uh, who are you? I am a very fortunate human. Someone who spent the first 38 years of his life really lost and has found redemption more than once in the last uh, 18 years since that that moment in prison. So it's not about money for me at all. My success was learning how to live in my skin and be comfortable and learning to be accepting, humble, and grateful. Me being in recovery and seeing a lot of people who have kind of gone through it, let's say, you hear that a lot, a lot about them being uncomfortable in their own skin. I think that was like one of the big reasons why to have some sort of inebriation is such a relief, right? You finally, you're not worried, you're not in your head anymore. And it's amazing to hear where people come from. That's one of my favorite things because you were a, you were a genuine, real criminal. <laughs> And you yeah, and you came one, but, yeah. and you came from a nice Christian household. You know? Yeah, <laughs> I rebelled, and, and that's my. Uh, you know, I had to go find. I had to find myself. So. Could you take us there to when when you first started? What your childhood was sort of like in essence, and when when you really first started to dip your toe into that that wildness or that rebelliousness that swept you away. I was sheltered, Seventh Day Adventist, to the core. Growing up, it was like that was, we were taught that was the only way to be, that you had to believe a certain way and think and act a certain way. And when I finally started realizing that that wasn't going to work for me, I didn't know what else was going to work for me. I just knew that wasn't, and it was no longer an option. I took off, you know, in my world. I just, I went out and I started exploring, trying to figure out who I was. What'd that look like? Well, at age of 12, maybe, was when I started having my doubts about it. And, you know, I was working in the family company. We had a bakery. Um, not, a, not a really successful bakery, but a bakery that provided us a living if we worked really hard. And I began to think, you know, in my teenage years that I was stuck there, that I really, I didn't ever think that I was built to do anything, anything else. And, you know, bottom line is being very depressed. I had really bad acne, uh, which really made it, it compounded it. I had real bad ADD, although, you know, nobody called it that in those days. And I tried, I started trying drugs, different drugs, alcohol, you know, hallucinogens, marijuana, all the, everything, except, you know, in the early days, I didn't do 
hard drugs like cocaine and meth and heroin. Uh, that wasn't like it is now. Nowadays, it's what everybody does. They get right into that, into the opiates, because they're, they're pushed on everybody, right? But I, uh, I didn't discover those things till way later. And the drugs that I did in my teenage years pretty much never worked for me. They just made me have bad, bad times. You know, I was. They amplified my my negative mood. So that was what I, I did one one thing after another one stupid the way I would look at it I don't I don't really see it that way now but the way I would look at it in those days is I was just doing I, I just was ill-equipped to live in this world part of it was that sheltered upbringing and having to start over in a world that, that I didn't fit in I didn't fit couldn't find myself a, a fit anywhere so the depression anxiety drugs you know the compound the compound of all that you know always proving to myself that i was right that i was a failure that's just how i lived it's how i what i thought about myself inside i never tried to show that i never was showing that to people any more than i could help but that's how i felt inside i still sometimes feel ill-equipped for this world it's well, it's it, an intense world it depends on what you what you're doing right <laughs> yeah <laughs> And and so what made the the leap? Because I still struggle with that in my own mind. I told you earlier that I ended up smoking meth. Yeah. I still struggle. I go, how did I make this leap from from this to this? But it happens. You know, if you're the right kind of person, yeah. <laughs> it happens so quickly. Right kind of person. The right kind of things happen to you. Uh, you. In my case, um, discovering meth was what I call my first transformation. I saw somebody transform in the Marine Corps. They went They went to the Marine Corps, a friend of mine, really close friend, another serious loser in, in my book in those days. And he was able to come out of there a man. You know, it's like he was just a way different person than, than when he went in. And, and if he did that, why can't I do that? So I tried it, and it didn't work for me. <laughs> it, you know, I wasn't ready for that. He... He was successful. So that was his first, trans that was the first transformation I saw in my life. And the second one was when I put a needle full of methamphetamine in my arm. That to me was my first transformation. It made me realize that there's a lot of different ways to see reality and to see your, yourself in the world and your options and possibilities. Most people don't think of methamphetamine as providing enlightenment like that that almost sounds like an enlightened thing but it was just it made me feel good it made me capable of not seeing uh, everything in a negative way uh, that worked for a while that uh, meth worked for a long time i thought it was working but it wasn't sustainable you know no. <laughs> <laughs> and i went to prison four times <laughs> so maybe there's something you know to the thing about meth not being a a good thing. I was unable to smoke it like a gentleman, but I was I was dreamed I could. <laughs> yeah, so you kind of did it all day and everything, you know. Yeah, I I did it around the clock, but that's the way I do everything. Yeah, that sounds way, like me. Yeah, that's the way I do absolutely everything. Is there's no no such thing as too much of a good thing. Right. I never started gambling because I know I would love it. Mm -hmm. I never started heroin. I this is a funny story. Oh. I had a uh, relative. I don't want to put him out there, so right. I can't identify. No I had names. A yeah, <laughs> I had a relative who was a a dopehead, a heroin guy. And he gave me an Oxycontin one time I took it and it felt so good. I said, man, I'm already addicted to meth. Like I, I can't, I can't afford another habit. So I never did it again. Cause I knew if I did it again, wow. it was on and I already had my thing. I'm much more of an upper kind of guy, but it's amazing. It's amazing that even to this day, I can get in the same way with like entertainment. Like where I just want to be entertained all the time, like sitting in boredom or sitting with my own work. Just or, or even, uh, you know, binge watching shows. Yeah. Do that kind of thing. Yeah, me too. Anything to avoid me, yeah. you know, to avoid that inner feeling. And it, it's it's just, uh, it took off. Yeah, I was, I, I think that's why I crashed and burned so quick. You know, it's like I, I got high for the first time when I was 12 and I, uh, upgraded quite quickly i mean by 15 i like cocaine and ecstasy you never fired it i never shot it 
No, never shot it. Smoked it. Smoked it. Yeah. <laughs> I lucked out. Yeah. I never had anybody yeah. who was. It's up. hard to get. It's hard to get as much of a dose unless you stick it in your arm. I mean, you can't get that instant dose. I can imagine. <laughs> <laughs> when did it go from fun to you're having to commit crimes to get by? No, it wasn't long. Uh, because I, the only reason I, I put that needle in my arm, and see, the first time I did meth, I put it in my arm. So I, that's what I thought you did. That's the way I was introduced to it, and it was amazing, so I just kept doing it that way. And I was working. I was working for the family uh, bakery, and I wasn't seeing my way out of there. I wasn't very happy. I was miserable. My depression and really suicidal thoughts, that was what put me in the fertile ground for something crazy to happen. So I, I went out, kept working, but I found that I couldn't stay consistent at my job because of various things that come with the drug world. And I couldn't afford it either. So I just started doing little burglaries and stuff, you know, kind of like joining others in their endeavors and learning the ropes of being a petty criminal. <laughs> I was loving it. I was like, because I, I didn't have an identity. You know, I really, I look back and I go, I didn't really have an identity. So this was kind of like my first real identity. And it's a rush, right? It's a rush to commit crimes and it's, it's belonging. Right? Sure. I remember the guys I used to dope, use, I, the guys I used to use with, it was like, oh, I belong to something greater than myself. Right. It was this group of <laughs> degenerates. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, I, I aspired to be a great street person, a great, you know, like, trailer trash yeah. kind of guy. I was like, I looked up to those people because they were, they were out there. They didn't have the issues I had, you know, they, they were somehow able to just be degenerates and happy, right? but, but they probably weren't happy. I feel like some people can manage it better than others. Yeah. Some people <laughs> are just meant to be, it seems like they're born to be that way. You know? Well, I, the reason why I feel like I know I wasn't is every time I would, I was always the guy to get caught. Yeah. Like when I was a kid, I was always the kid. I had kids who would use the same drugs I used. And for some reason I was the one to get caught. I don't mm -hmm. know if I was just bad at it. Mm -hmm. I feel like it was just like these freak incidents though. Yeah. That you couldn't. Like, I've got some of those too. I know. <laughs> you know it's like, like something was nudging me back onto the path I was supposed to be on. I just wasn't listening. It looks like it worked. So far, yeah. When's the first time you got pinched? Um, Mid-80s, somewhere around 85, 86. I was 22-ish, um, which was late. But I mean, I got, I got, I got arrested for uh, marijuana, little stuff, drink, oh, drinking, things like that when I was a kid. That didn't, I don't think that counts. For actually, criminal behavior was, was then, it was a burglary charge. In, residential? Uh, residential yes. burglary. Mm -hmm. The first burglaries I did were uh, business burglaries. Uh, just breaking into some, some, somebody's tool shed, you know. Um, Things like that, you know, and I did jockey boxing, stupid things like that, just really petty stuff. And then uh, the burglaries was house burglaries, and I did a lot of them before I got busted. But it was they were all stupid, and they were all it was always a arrest, something waiting to happen for sure. When I read your story, or when I when I read up on you and try to follow your path, it seems like the time that you spent in prison. Uh, the various times that you spent in prison were also part of your, like, as you said, like the first time you smoked meth was a transformation yeah. that your prison was part of your transformation into who you are today. Absolutely. I know, I know some of the big stuff, like I know you got in a vocational program for drafting mm -hmm. my fourth time down. What were the things you pulled from these experiences? What, 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 I guess, you know, up until you finally really decided to turn your life around, what did you cling on to? Like, Oh, I've, I've learned this now. Almost always, it was how can I learn to be a better criminal so that, and you know, a drug dealer. It's what I, I wanted to be a great drug dealer so that I could make money and eventually, you know, and keep my habit going while saving money and things for to do a legit business, but to continue doing my, my, uh, 
the dope because that was necessary. That was the one necessary thing to me. It was like the dope was the only thing that I knew that would make me feel okay. Eventually, like the fourth time, before I got arrested the fourth time, I was really big into selling drugs. And I was doing doing pretty well um, until I got busted. <laughs> you know, and busted, the busts were unbelievable. The crazy shit happened in 1997. But um, I write a book just about that year, I think. And it was just one arrest after another. Insane that I was able to get out and uh, get myself in more trouble. And um, so, yeah, I, I, I became a better and better criminal, more thoughtful, but it never stopped me from getting busted. The fourth time down, I was, uh, I started the sentence at the age of, you know, 34 or five. I'm looking at 118 months, you know, ahead of me. So I know I'm basically 10 years. I, I'm going to get out in my mid forties. I think I was going to, I think I was going to be 45 when I got out. Yeah, that's right. Because I ended up getting out when I was 43, got out a couple years early. When that happened, when I got arrested that time, I realized that uh, this was not going to continue to work. This wasn't working. Four times in prison, is it's kind of making a point. I spent like the first two or three years of that sentence thinking about how I could take myself out. I remember watching a guy try to kill himself with his big razors, you know. They weren't big enough and strong enough to really kill you i mean you could if you had enough time i saw this guy try to do that and he just bled all over the place they took him out in a stretcher now he's not only a suicidal not not only does he want to die but everybody knows it you know and he's become this pariah can't do his time i didn't want people to know i i was suicidal they didn't know that but when i finally asked for help that was the beginning of of the change for me you asked the prison prison officials for help I raised my hand, you know, I, I waved the white flag, and metaphorically, I, I dropped a, a kite, uh, inmate communication form into the box. It took me a year of thinking about it before I did it, probably. Uh, I couldn't sleep at night. When I slept, I had really, really bad dreams. I was miserable, and I remember finally asking, you know, dropping the kite in, asking for to see somebody about my, my mind. I didn't tell them I was suicidal. That would have been a mistake. But even telling on yourself at all in there is just so counterintuitive to how you think as a convict. So it took me a long time to get to that point, and it was the best thing I ever did. What happens? And a couple of weeks later, I get called in to see the physician's assistant who is capable of prescribing the meds that I ended up getting. I told him that I was um, I was really having a hard time. I couldn't sleep. Uh, I was depressed. And I didn't even know. I thought being depressed in those days meant just meant your life sucked. And why wouldn't you be bummed out? You know? Yeah. I didn't know there was anything you could do about it. And he did prescribe me antidepressant called Paxil. They say it takes a while for it to affect you, but it didn't take me long at all. So sometimes I wonder if it was partly at least placebo effect, you know, and part of it is just that waving the white flag, surrender, like they, they talk about in AA and stuff like that. It was a surrender moment. And just I stopped thinking or caring about what other people thought of me. That was a huge deal to begin with. When you started taking the Paxil? Before, before I started oh, taking yeah. the Paxil. When I put that kite in the box, was like, it was amazing. Once I dropped that kite in the box, I felt a sense of relief. Like, who fuck them? You know, fuck anybody that doesn't. Yeah. I have severe depression that ends up with suicidal ideation from time to time. It's like something I'm learning to, to live with better and better. I don't necessarily think it's something that I'm ever going to erase. It's something I'm going to learn to live with better. Part of the disease, part of the depression, because so many people who have listened to this program have told me that they do the same thing, is that you get on these meds and you feel better and then you get off them, right? I don't do that. Yeah, you're smart. And so half like, a couple times during me doing this podcast, I went off my meds and the I was smart enough in one way, which I always traveled with them. I always brought them with me no matter what. 
but when I take that first one, when I'm so fucking depressed, I, I hit that surrender point to where I'm like, why are you off your meds? Yeah. Why? Because it's like the same ego thing you were talking about with the other guys where it's like, I don't want, I don't want to be dependent on meds. When I take that first one, yes, the the pill might not be actually changing my brain, but the act of choosing myself, like choosing to accept help, like I feel better from. I think that immediately helped. So I get it. you say like it's just started working. I I know exactly what you mean because yeah. you're choosing yourself. Yeah. For the first time over. And you know what was cool? Uh, the next thing that happened. It was September around September two thousand one, same year, same uh, time when the you know nine eleven attacks happened. I was able. I, I it was like my first couple weeks in school. I went to uh, computer drafting school, CAD CAM uh, drafting and machining. At first, I remember going there and thinking, "Oh man, I'm stupid. You know, I fucking fuck me. I can't. I'll never be able to do this." And I got it. I, I got going, and uh, within a couple, I mean, everybody around me at first knew how to use their machines and you know the computers. I didn't even know how to turn the damn thing on. You know, I was I was like, right, "How am I going to do this?" You know, and finally. You know, within a couple of weeks, I was excelling at it and loving it every minute of it. See, that's that's the gift. I started loving life. I started loving learning and all the things that I was doing and and forgiving myself for my past and forgiving myself and accepting myself for who I am. You know, that was the beginning. That was what CAD did for me. I think it was the right thing at the right time, but it also was due to the meds and, and the surrender, waving the white flag. All those things combined to make me like incredibly happy. And I was like in prison and I was free mentally. I really was. I, I've never been freer. I took that freedom that I got in CAD, that mental freedom and that, that lack of negativity that I stopped hating on the corrections officers and even my dad and, you know, everybody. And I started accepting, wow, if the, this guy is this miserable, you know, th that he's got to make everybody else's time bad. And I feel for him because, you know what, I, it doesn't affect me anymore. And uh, I started having compassion for people even. And... Um, even for corrections officers. I got, I, I was able to get out. I spent the next two or three years in prison. I was able to get out a couple of years early because they sent me into this drug program that I didn't want to go in because I'm like, I'm doing so well right here with this cat <laughs> going on this thing. They put me in this drug program. I'm going to get out two year, a year and a half, two years early, but I don't care. I don't want to go because I'm doing well right here. I had a plan. I'm just going to keep going where this takes me. Well, that's that's the one thing is that I it, I wasn't supposed to be care comfortable, you know. Yet I had to keep growing and getting myself uh, being forced to change direction was a um, was a good thing. I think and helped me see a few more. Uh, viewpoints before it was time to get into the big challenges of, the, of going to the streets because that's where that's that's where real life is is out here where you're dealing with a lot of different sorts of uh, forces oh yeah so what happens when you get out i got out uh december 27 2004 so i i always think it's basically 2005 is when i got out i got out with a new lease on life I, it was like starting over reborn you know, the last couple of years had been amazing, and and that was in prison. So I'm here. I am hitting the street with this amazing attitude, and clear head, and a desire to make my mark. I had learned in drafting that uh, about design principles and things like that. Just the essential, the basic, simple building blocks of creating something. As a as a drafter, what you do is you first replicate a design, you replicate something, say a table, and you have to learn how to make that table before you can make a better one. That's, I took that men mentality to the streets and created Dave's Killer Bread eventually. 
people say, well, you were successful with Dave's Killer Bread. No, I was successful way before Dave's Killer Bread. Dave's Killer Bread was kind of like the icing on the cake. And when you first start Dave's Killer Bread, it's out of the old family bakery, yeah. right? That your father started that was kind of a mom pa kind of place. But your brother ran it now? My brother had been running it. He was eight years older than me. He'd taken it further than my dad did. And so how did the how did Dave's Killer Bread really come about though? Because when you get out, I imagine uh your family is not like Hey, man, welcome back. Why don't you create some good bread for us? You know, I imagine they're kind of hesitant. Sure. Yeah, my brother saw a difference in me, you know, no doubt about that. He couldn't help but see a difference. I wasn't blaming people anymore. I wasn't making excuses. Um, I I I was a force because I was taking it in. I had learned that the power is within you. You know, you if you... You pass it to others if you blame or or say it's their fault or make excuses, then you you're giving away your power. I knew, and he saw that I wasn't doing that, but he was a little bit concerned that I was just too I had too much energy and I was too too high strung, and he was afraid that maybe something would trip me up, you know, and send me back to being the way I was because I'd been that way for so long. He didn't really know me as an adult with my own mind. Anyway, I got I got to work. I first started working at 12 bucks an hour on the line with everybody else and just working my ass off. It was graveyard shift, I think, at first. I was like kicking ass because a lot of people, people calling sick and boom, I was right there, you know, to take over for them. And I, I was just taking all the work and it was just temporary to start with. It was, it was just whatever position somebody wouldn't show up, I'd, I'd just take their place at first. But I worked my way into a full-time position really quickly. Of course, it was only 12 bucks an hour, um, but I didn't spend it anywhere. You know, I was, I, I lived in my mom's garage. That's where, I, you know, she was, she was around. And once I got a 89 Ford Ranger, I was, I was set. You know, I, it didn't cost me much to keep that thing going eventually i got a a place a house with uh that my friend rented to me for a really good price i didn't miss the money you know i i hadn't had money so it wasn't a big deal so i always lived within my means i started working on ideas you know first i redeveloped the cookies for the company the cookies were trader joe's they needed to be needed to take the trans fats out at that time and i ended up making them a vegan product you know no animal products and i was really on a roll with that i thought well i'm gonna just keep making cookies i'm gonna make some killer cookies right my brother says i just wanted you to you know fix those cookies i don't we don't really do cookies that's another thing you know what i mean we do bread i'm like man that's a whole nother a whole nother problem because bread now you're now you're dealing with you're dealing with the big big boys you have the or wheats and around here we call it friends you're the monsters of bread um the big bread industry yeah yeah <laughs> and i was uh i was the david literally with with goliath and i was a little bit daunted i was a little bit worried that i couldn't do it you know i, I had to prove it that i could actually beat what was out there that was my challenge because we're this small bakery we can't do exactly what anybody else does because we're too small to compete we had to create something that was different enough that it wouldn't be an easy wouldn't be an easy uh, replication by one of the big guys and that they would have to retool to make it and things like that because it uh in the bread industry that's really what it takes is you have to be able to produce this stuff competitively. Well, we did, Dave's Killer Bread, what I created was, it appeared to be a niche item at first. And that was, it, I was just making something that was the Cadillac or the Ferrari of breads. It was just, as I learned to replicate what was out there, I'm like, you know, these, these are good breads. I like these breads, but... It, as I learned how to make them, I realized why they were good and how I could make them better. And that's all I did is I just added better ingredients, more better ingredients. Uh, I changed the way you think about making a loaf of bread. 
it, I had to approach it from a different angle. I used nutrition programs to give me, there was a tool that I was able to use to formulate. And I doubt too many people had done that before. No, it was packed, like, packed with seeds and like yeah. totally just different product than just your typical wheat bread. The flagship these days, right, is the good seed. But I know that. That's mine. That's your flagship. 21 whole grains is, uh, was the more popular, but to me, good seed, I have it on my back. I know. I was going to ask you, what is the, the good seed philosophy? What does that mean to you? It's, I always thought that it would be more picked up. I'm glad you picked it up because people loved my story. They loved the transformation and the redemption aspect of it, of it the hero's journey that everybody kind of relates to, right? To me, being a bad seed all my life and creating bad, everything I did was touched, turned to shit, right? Uh, that's a bad seed. Or, you know, a lot of times people want to be known as a bad seed because it's rebellious. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm a bad seed. I, I'm a bad motherfucker, right? Well, I started seeing that I, I was a good seed, you know, that my life, I was a transformed person. And I'm planting good seeds out there and it's a natural thing to do when you have this transformation you want to make a, a good difference in the world at least that's my experience so before i made the loaf of bread i had the name good seed i created the loaf of bread around that name and was hoping people would get it more that good seed is is very meaningful it's a very simple meaningful idea of how you can live your life you know how do you like to live your life as a good seed like how do you implement that ideology into your daily life these days what what gets it for me is you know i i could do a lot of different things and i do a lot of different things everything that i do to say uh in business i do with thoughts of of how i'm affecting the world you know it's always in my mind because my story has so many aspects of transformation and what what it takes and i have learned so many great lessons i get involved in charities and movements that you know show people how to do that that give people the opportunity to do that with dave's killer bread we because i was an ex-felon we naturally gave other ex-felons an opportunity and those guys if you pick the right people can be amazing you know, because they're they're grateful and they're going to work really hard and smart and they're going to be dedicated to the cause. So we found that out with Dave's Killer Bread. And I found that with everything that I do, if, I'm, if I approach it in the sense that I'm going to make a difference in people's lives with this thing that I do. For instance, I'm involved with Constructing Hope here in Portland. Um, this organization teaches people the trades. It teaches people to get ready to get a job in the trades. What it is is it gives people who really don't have much of an outlook, much of a future. They don't see that, that they have a future until they go into this program and they realize that they have value. You know, just like I did when I went to school for drafting, I realized from that point on that I had value, that I could contribute. And so it, because of I know how that feels, I really want to be a part of other people doing that for themselves. How do you bring that just into your day-to-day -day life? Like, what do you do to take care of yourself, take care of your mind, take care of this, uh, this life that you built for yourself and be a good guy to, to people? Well, it kind of pulls me. It, it it pulls me in that direction. The problem I had a few years ago is I, I started drinking. I was very successful with the company, ridiculously successful. Nobody would have expected it, especially me. The happiness I had before Dave's Killer Bread actually was in jeopardy because of, the, of that success and the ego um, and the alcohol. Really, it was the alcohol. that it, I could have survived the whole, all of that if I hadn't been drinking all the time, drinking like I was. Just to catch uh, people up, because I know some of the backstory, but just to catch people up who are listening. So you go from this seasonal farmer's market bread to in the big chains, like in some big chains. It took a while. Everything was incremental. Yeah, over what, like 15 years, 10, 10 years? No, from, from 2005 to 2010, we grew phenomenally, even, okay. even to 2012. At uh, but 2012 was like the height of my success. 
uh, investment firm buys 50% of the company, everybody gets paid for their hard work, right? Involved, which is you, your brother, and- My uh, nephew. Your nephew, mm -hmm. excuse me. Brother and nephew, yeah. Yeah, brother and nephew. And um, and then you start drinking again. Okay, so now you can-, now you can <laughs> Well, see, I never thought drinking was um, was a problem. You know, I thought well, I could party and have fun with like everybody else, and I did for quite a while. See, drinking was never had never been a criminal thing for me, and it never it never became a criminal thing. I was doing good things in drinking. I was uh, speaking. I, I God, I was I was going out speaking to tons of kids, and even on the Senate floor, Oregon Senate floor, I was uh, I was asked to give the invocation for a Senate session, and I did that, and it was like God, you know, a dream come true. But I was, at that point, beginning to drink quite a bit. Eventually, things, little things started happening and put little chinks in my armor. That's what it was. I was so strong, morally, you know, I was, I was in high ground for so long. But the drinking just started putting little caveats in that. As your ego is growing too? Yes. Yeah. The ego and alcohol... And I'm still thinking, well, you know, I'm doing great things. All the time, I was always thinking, I'm doing good things. I'm making a difference. And I was. I, I said, I never want to be a parody of myself. And I I became a parody of myself. So some intense shit goes down. This is the, like, this is my favorite. Honestly, this is my favorite part of your story, Dave. <laughs> Not it, mine, but. Yes, I know. It, but you will come to agree with me at some, once you're yeah. a little further away from it. Because yeah. this is, it's, it's a cultural. Well, it's an important part. It's a cultural thing, though, is that we have two-hour movies. We have three-hour movies. So what you see is one cycle of, you, you know, the hero's journey where you kind of go, you have some troubles and trials, and then you start getting on the high road, then you have the big test, and then you're home free, right? Mm -hmm. You've made one cycle. but And then the movie ends. Everyone just assumes that the hero is forever just the best husband in the world and the greatest guy. But what's, what's real is that we're all human. I'm eight years clean and sober, and I still can be a total asshole to my mom sometimes yeah. you know or i can be a total selfish shit yeah. to some and you look back at that and you go man i was a jackass or yeah. or, or you just go well, this is the way i'm going to be and you know yeah and i've been i've been suicidal sober it's like everybody wants there to be this one quick fix right like oh just the drugs were the problem but it's really our humanity that's like it's not the problem it's just we're looking at what it is well and i yeah. you know i had come to this this belief that I had figured it out that I was this amazing, I had this amazing turnaround in my life. I would, I couldn't fuck that up, you know? And I, that was, there was a certain amount of arrogance there or just ignorance that I could fall again, you know? That was a shock to me. It was like was Icarus, you know? Yeah. You know, like flying too close this time. Yeah. Yeah. Let, all right. I'm just going to, I want to make sure that we get the, the whole story because it's, it's important. And I heard it in one of the, uh, place and i didn't quite think that it was led up to correctly where that it's not just it's not like this just this one event just happened right no. there's like this lead up and can you just take us through the lead up to where people start getting worried things start kind of falling apart because it makes a lot more sense it's very important yeah it's a very important aspect that um this didn't happen overnight it wasn't it wasn't a one-time occurrence but it was that occurrence was the deal breaker if you will um few months before that i was starting to get in trouble My, i had this assistant for instance i'm going to keep it short he, he we started having issues and i was drinking so everything was drinking related you, you all the problems were wouldn't have happened it seems if it wasn't for the alcohol but i'm coming back from an event in california where i'm promoting bread and i'm speaking i was in, in southern california uh we're flying back my assistant is sitting in front of me i got two guys one guy on the other side of me and we're just having a party you know we're drinking tequila i i ended up smacking my assistant like like a little i i call it a love tap but he 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 felt disrespected it was something he said and i you know i i, I did the wrong thing that was like the beginning you're also huge and drunk <laughs> yeah yeah oh yeah yeah so maybe what you think is a love tap might be a little bit exactly right. see that's the thing i don't always see uh we, we don't always see what we look like right the idea we're giving people 
so I smacked him, but it was, uh, it was like I said, it was fun for me and for him it wasn't. And he went to HR. I'm the president of the company, but he's going to HR on me, right? And he told me later that I was really disrespected. And I go, oh, you know, dude, I'm sorry. I did not realize it. But it ended up ugly, ugly. And that happened. And now, see, we had- People's ears are kind of perked up now. Yeah. They're starting to get worried about you. Yes. Yeah. And we had just sold half the company to these private investors or a private equity firm in um, in New York. They don't really know me. They they know the story with it that nobody really knows the whole story, right? They have ideas of the story and they're not seeing that. They're seeing this guy is a loose cannon now. And <laughs> the one that's drink. built upon the redemption story. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing, the whole reason this company is so successful was my turnaround and, uh, and how I became this innovator and all this kind of stuff. The, the great things that I, the good things that I did we're going to be, they're going to be buried now. I I did this little thing on the plane, but wow. And there you go. I went to treatment a little while after this. I went to treatment in Utah for 45 days. And I got out thinking, well, I'm not, I'm not drinking anymore. But next thing you know, I'm drinking. I had made an appearance at the annual blues festival here in Portland where I, I was kind of becoming a normal institution at the blues fest every year and i would sign autographs take pictures uh do all this stuff right after that me and my girlfriend at the time we went over to this this bar close by and because i'm celebrating i mean i get this high and then i want to go drink you know so i would i was taking shots of tequila and i got somebody saw me doing this no now i realized i mean this is what made me realize i can't do anything without people seeing me you know, and knowing about what I'm doing. And next, uh, the next day I was called in to the CEO. I'm the president. He was the CEO, the new CEO we had. And he's like, what's going on with this? And I'm like, you know, I got pissed. And I said, well, you know, now people are spying on me. And I, I, I flipped out and kind of said, all right, I need a break. I need, I need to, we, we need to do a sabbatical. I believe that was when the sabbatical occurred, but I'm not sure because the next thing that happened, I went with a friend, three friends, but one of them was a friend from my dope days. And we went up to my cabin on Mount Hood. We're drinking away, but this guy wasn't really into drinking. He wanted to do something else. And I drank enough to the point where I said, okay, let's do that. You know, I think it was coke we were talking about doing and i hadn't done any of that for many years none of the hard nothing but alcohol he takes off make a long story short this guy ends up finding his decomposing body in a ditch 47 days later i think that's 47 days in your car no no no, no. he took my car but he left my car somewhere and then he ended up in this ditch you're you know but i was accused that people started going onto facebook you're the last guy who saw him alive, right? Yeah. <laughs> there you there's, go. There's all these all these people he knew going on saying Dave killed him. You know, Dave had to, you know, shut him up. He knew something, you know. <laughs> or something. You know, they they everybody's and they're doing this on my company Facebook page. Now I'm a murderer. That that's <laughs> killer just, bread. <laughs> yeah, Dave's killer bread. Yeah. And people have always been like, Well, is he a killer? You know, now he's a killer. And it makes such a great story. But this, you know, I was heartbroken by this. This is my friend, you know, and I don't, I'm accused of killing him. I quit drinking several weeks before the uh, the incident happened and after that. This this all scared me silly. And I saw, I got myself a high-powered defense attorney, which I thought at first was like, well, wait a minute, I get this guy and it makes me look guilty, you know, but really you got to have that in this case. And the company was like, you have, you need this. And, they, and the company's not sure if I did kill him. They're like, maybe he did kill him. I mean, from the company's standpoint, so for people that don't know how investment works, is they bought 50% of the company with the expectation that the company's going to turn around and make like 10 times that. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, this brand newly acquired company, <laughs> the president that the brand is built off of, that is a redemption story, is now publicly drinking, <laughs> apparently hanging around with dead people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, this was a this this 
was unbelievable. And you're right, that that's a great encapsulation of, of what people were probably, they were just like, oh my God. Like, no offense, I don't mean this in any disrespect. You took everyone around you hostage for this little trip, man. Yeah, I did. Yeah. And yeah, there it is. So what happened, the day that really, all, it sounds like it's bad enough already, right? I, I went to, uh, I was starting to get really resentful. I could only see that, look, they're not remembering me for who I really am. I mean, and all these things that have happened, they're kind of just little mistakes. They're not, everything I do is amplified 10 times, you know. When I let the guy leave in my car, he ends up dead. Well, what did I do? I made a mistake of letting him take off in my car and I drank too much, you know. I made a bad, bad decision. But now he ends up dead. So these things are just like adding up. They're just like piling up. Somehow I ended up, I'm on this sabbatical from the company. I quit drinking, but I'm starting to have this mania. I didn't realize it was mania. I, I just, it's hypomania where you're, it's kind of the opposite of being depressed. You're just you're like psychosis. Well, before it was, I wasn't psychotic yet. You know, I'm oh. talking about leading up to the incident. Oh, manic. Yeah. Manic. I was hypomanic, which is just under that level of psychotic. But you're just, you're just really energetic and you're making a lot of decisions and, you know, flighty ideas and bad decisions. So I had been banished from my own company. We used to call it killer bread quarters still do i guess i was supposed to be there i mean i wasn't supposed to be there and it started making me very resentful that i couldn't go and be in my own company <laughs> company <laughs> and see my employees and see how resentment was building but i didn't know that it was resentment you know i didn't know what was going on i didn't i didn't know what it was doing to me one day, one of our bodybuilding, and I had a lot of these guys who would eat the bread and talk about the bread and wear the shirts and stuff, and they would, I would give them endless bread. And they, they were great ambassadors. Well, this guy, he wanted to come take pictures that day, you know, and I'm like, oh, yeah, let's go. And I, I said, screw it, I'm going in there today. And I, I did, showed up. At the, at the store and there was this cardboard cutout of me <laughs> that I never liked. I'm like, this is a symbol. This is, this is, this is what's wrong with all this, you know? And, because uh, I'm all about real, you know, I'm all about, I was like, I want to be this real guy, you know? Yeah, but okay. Yeah, but it's also because like the company is literally built oh. built with your image yeah. right and then you're not allowed in there <laughs> well that was well that was what <laughs> yes i mean i had already not liked the thing for those other reasons but when i came in there that day that was what i was thinking i wasn't thinking it i was feeling it i was walking in seeing this cardboard cut out of me that i didn't like anyway and thinking to myself okay this guy can be here but i can't what is wrong with that picture? And but I didn't say it. I didn't think it. I didn't say it. I just punched him. And no more cardboard cutout. But that scared a lot of people. Again, it's this guy that looks like it looks dangerous. You know, it's probably going to hurt somebody if we don't do something. So yeah. they called the cops, and that was the beginning of the end. Because that night. That night, uh, ends up in like a car chase, right? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because friends of mine called had called mental health. You know, they have mental health departments, whatever, of the Washington County Sheriff, and they had called them, and somehow they were on a shift change or something. It didn't show up. The cops showed up instead, and the cops got there, and I'm already freaked out, and I see these cops. I don't know what I did. I don't know what happened. I just know that I was driving my car through the neighborhood and smashing into cop cars, just freaking out. I remember it comes to an end. They almost, they beat that living crap out of me, which I've been, you know, I'm kind of used to it. Cops beat me up so many times. I went to jail and they would treat me like a criminal. They did not treat me like I had a mental problem. My attorney says to me, before you bail out, let me talk some sense to you. You had a serious breakdown. 
you need to go into Cedar Hills Hospital, which is, you know, a place you can go check in and um, and do your mental come down. Uh, I was like, no way, it's bullshit. I thought I had my shit together. I'm not crazy. And that's the thing about being crazy. You don't really know. Wow. You know and t- there's a certain time, though, when I was in between my, that night after I got busted and they put me in jail where I experienced extreme psychosis to the point of inability to even function, to even, I don't even know how to explain that kind of psychosis. But I'll make a long story short. I ended up at Cedar Hills Hospital. I, I took his advice after thinking about it a long time. And after a few weeks there, I remember seeing an article come out about me in the Willamette Week, which is the local paper, local weekly street paper. And it was called Breaking Bread instead of Breaking Bad. Yeah, it was a really good article. And you read it, yeah. Yeah. They, it is a good article. It was not a short article. It wasn't short. <laughs> it was a very in-depth, they got long. a good writer. He, he, yeah. he, 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 it wasn't a lot of BS. It was pretty good. There was some, there was some stuff like, but when I read it, though, it hit me like a ton of bricks. You know, I had seen nothing but good press about myself for all those years. It's not sympathetic at all. No. Yeah. Not to me. No. Uh, and it's funny. I, I was able to go and have a follow-up interview with that writer. And I saw there's a, there's a follow-up to that article. I saw that. And as I read it, there were certain things that I read that just dropped me. And I hadn't been depressed in many, many years. And bam, there I was. And there was every reason in the world to be depressed. I So I think that sometimes depression is just the way it's going to be, you know, at least for a guy like me. But it's very much related to circumstances in this case. And... I was dropped to the point where I could not move. I, I could not move. You ever had that kind of depression? Yeah. Where you physically just can't, you don't want to move. Seems like you could go out and run or something and get rid of it, but you can't. You, no, it's like, it's a catch 22 of a really bad one, you know? It's mm-hmm. like, you know what's going to help you. It's like. But you're not willing to do it. You just keep fucking, like, how can you? you yeah. Know? Yeah. Exactly. Paralyzed. Yeah. Paralyzed. Yeah. Exactly what it was up. And, I, and, and it, the, you know, this was the reason I had let down how many people I had totally destroyed something so unbelievably wonderful with this one move. I mean, the other things that led up to it were all things I could survive. But this particular move right here was unexplainable. There was no rational explanation for it. It just made me look bad. Bottom line, I look bad, and I made my company look bad. Everybody was scared to death that the company was going to go down because of it. The good seed principle had gone to hell, you know. Now I'm bad seed, literally just as the worst seed I've ever been. And I couldn't, I couldn't deal with that. How'd you start getting yourself back? Well, I guess more immediately when you're rebuilding. How do you even start to move with all the shame? Like, how do you let go of the shame? How do you start to even get to a place to where you can start showing up for yourself? It it was weird. I think that I there was a lot of people who were willing to forgive me. I needed to get forgiveness for this to for to get a start. People were like, "Well, you know, sure, you know, you're human, you know, like we talked about." There were people who were like. Dave, you're human, but look at what you've done in the past. You've done so many good things. This can all still turn out okay. I didn't believe it, but I was willing to entertain the idea that my life could be okay again. I wanted it to be okay again. Here I was, I was a multimillionaire, but my heart was completely broken. There was nothing money could do. It was incremental. I started, I was asked to speak at these various things and I had to get myself up for it. It took me months and, you know, year, year and a half, two years to incrementally get to a better spot. Um, 
I finally got, I definitely got to a point. I actually had another serious sort of almost psychotic experience where I had to just sit. This part of the healing process was another breakdown, but I was able to just sit in my chair and not do anything. I was in a good position for that, where I, I just, I, I don't even know how to explain that kind of psychosis. Uh, it could have been much worse. And anyway, that was years ago now. Now it's all many years ago, several years ago. Did you quit drinking or? Oh, yeah. I had to overcome the urge to do that too. And it took me a while because, you know, was, drinking was like a solution, you know. I remember I, I got a shoulder surgery at one point, and that's when I discovered that I liked opiates for the first time. So I had to go through an opiate addiction that it took me twice to get. For, I had to go to treatment for that, too. So that's a few years ago now. But I did. This was a rocky road get, coming out of it. Yeah, it's been a rocky. You've paid your dues, man. With that information that you have now about yourself, like how do you really take care of yourself? How do you make sure that you're being like a good seed to yourself, I guess? There's one sure thing, and that's substances, alcohol, anything anything that's addictive is not good, right, for me. It's great. You, you know, I could do very well for a while, but everything that, every bad thing that happens with me is amplified somehow. Wait, are you on probation? Well, it's <laughs> you call it probation from, uh, but it's um, I'm a mental patient in the street because of my my last big big deal, and I was convicted in a sense. It was like guilty except for insanity for assault charges on the cops. Um, oh, because you hit the cars. Yeah, yeah I could have uh, I could have fought that and on different levels, but really, a high profile case. I had to get punished. So they they punished me by making me a mental patient with with restrictions. And at first, I couldn't drive. I couldn't do a lot of things. But now I can. Now I've, I've worked my way out of that hole. Yeah. So now you just get UAs. Yeah. UAs. Uh, I have travel restrictions. It's not easy to travel. Yeah. I have to get permission ahead of time. Things like that. And then I going out of the country would be. I haven't done it yet. Not in the cards yet. One of the, the parts of your story that uh, doesn't have a nice bow on it is the relationship to your brother, mm. right? And your nephew. Yeah. Which and I think this is probably common. It's just this is such a high profile kind of company is that the, the company really destroyed your guys' relationship. It wasn't, didn't start out with a great relationship. My brother and I were fairly close growing up because I, my, bro my brother was like somebody I looked up to. He's eight years older than me, so I, I always looked up to my brother. Well, when I got to a point of my own where I was on my, my own thinking and stuff, we kind of drifted apart, and he watched me go through all these crazy things, and he kept on this steady path. And uh, so when I got out, when he gave me that opportunity coming back out of prison, it was like from the very beginning there was there was issues because I was really a cowboy. You know, I was shooting from the hip, creating stuff and making everybody uncomfortable in this little company. People had their, their comfort zones and I was, I was really creating issues. And, uh, so this was a problem. We fought all the way through Dave's killer bread. I'd say right now, because it's all in the past over the last few months, like, there was an interview with Guy Raz of NPR. I'm sure you heard. Uh, it's called um, "How I Built this. How I Built This." At that time, I wasn't talking to them. Are you talking to them now? And now, now I do. Mostly my brother. My brother. Uh, we've gotten to the point where we can hang out, and it's not a bad thing. We're just like we can agree to disagree on some things, but we're okay. We're okay now. How'd that transformation happen? I remember being at, I saw him at a birthday party for my granddaughter. He was there. Uh, I saw him and his wife, and I just go, what the hell, man? What? I'm bigger than this, right? I, not, I didn't think those words, but I just ran up. I walked up to him. I go, hey, man, can we, can we give it another try? <laughs> Something like that. Gave him a hug. He was like, 
what's going on? <laughs> you know, what's this guy doing? But now we see each other here and there, and I think we're on good terms. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> why why hold on to any negativity? I wasn't expecting it. Well, you know, stuff with family is strange, man. You yeah. know, stuff- I had a hard time. I yeah. took me it's taken me years, and I still I'm sure he and I both still have some negative thoughts about each other, but yeah. hey. Like I see it, I really saw it from both sides. Like I felt bad for your brother who kind of had to hold it down while you were away. Yeah. Like you were away, you know? Yeah. Well, it was his yeah. company. Yeah. No, it never really was mine. And uh, so he had, he had a purpose. Right? He had an identity. You see, the thing was I didn't have that. And that's what I had to go out and create. Miracle. It is, yeah. yeah. It's a hard, it's, it takes work. A lot of people don't get there with their families, you know. I didn't think I would. It didn't sound hopeful. No. (laughs) It's really cool, man. My life. I mean, it's cool to watch you smile when you talk about it, though. That's the biggest smile that you've had during this whole conversation, is that you and your brother are talking again. Big deal. It's a big deal. So this is the way I like to end every program. If I could hand you a phone right now, and on the other end of it is 12-year-old Dave, before things... uh, took their turns and i'm not i'm not saying that you can save yourself and i'm not sure that you would want to save yourself you gotta learn you gotta learn but what is the information you would want to give him to help him along the way until he becomes the man that you've become well okay check this out sometimes i think that this 12 year old dave you don't want to give him anything because he's got how's he going to figure these how's he going to go through those experiences that really matter that made him special made him who he was if he has somebody telling him, avoid this, avoid that. But I think there's one thing you don't want anyone to feel the way I did, right? If I could somehow, without taking the strength that I've developed over the years from from my experiences, without taking that away, give him some comfort. Comfort him saying, it's going to be all right. It's not just somebody saying that because somebody's going to say that, you know. A lot of people are going to say that they have no idea what they're talking about. But I do know what I'm talking about, and I know it's going to be all right for that 12-year-old Dave. Maybe just put my arm around him going, look, I'm not going to be around for these next 25 years or whatever, but you're going to be okay. That would be really cool. Thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you. Hey, so that's the end of this conversation. But if you don't want the conversation to end, you can follow us on social media on almost every platform. We're at hellohumans.co, except for Twitter, which has an underscore CO. Our website is hellohumans.co. We have great stories, videos, and the episodes live there as well. And for more of our guests, for more of any of our guests, I always post their social media, their books, their videos, their art in the show notes, which is another word for the podcast episode description, and it's available wherever you're listening. I promise you just have to click around. If you'd like to help us out more, there's a few ways you can help. Please share this podcast with your friends or people that you think would get value out of it. Writing us a review on iTunes is incredibly helpful for our ratings. And also, of course, this program is not possible without listener community contribution so our patrons are our financial backbone of this product that's how we manage to do this ad free you can become a patron by going to patreon.com slash how to human that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash how to human this is the how to human podcast a production of hellohumans.co until next time have a great day